This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today, on Wednesday, we are sponsoring a weekly shiur by Rav uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish, who's been doing a lot of work in the last few years on the study of Mishnah specifically, giving a weekly shiur on reading Mishnah. In our tenth and final shiur on Mishnayot Masechet Rosh Hashanah, we'll focus on the Mishnayot of Perak Dalid. Perak Dalid, as we mentioned at the end of our last shiur, divides rather neatly into two sections. The first section, Mishnayot Aleph Ad Dalid, which relate to the Takanot of Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakkai, opening with a takana regarding Tkiyat Shofar and closing with a couple of takanot regarding Kiddush HaChodesh. And uh, that's the first section, Mishnayot, Hey through Tet, which open with Seder Brachot and close with Seder Tkiyot. And uh, all of the Mishnayot in this section deal with one or the other, or in fact, in several cases, with both and with their interaction, the re- relationship between the special brachot, the special tefillot of Rosh Hashanah, and the special tkiot of Rosh Hashanah. So, uh, we'll open our discussion by first of all looking at the first section of the chapter. Uh, the first section of the chapter opens with the uh, well-known Takana of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, that uh, uh, whereas at the time of the Beit HaMikdash, Yom Tov Shel Rosh Hashanah, Shechal Liot B'Shabbat, B'Mikdash Hayu Tokim, Aval Lo B'Mdina, that when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you blow the Shofar only in the Mikdash and not elsewhere, not in the Medina, in, in the rest of the country of Eretz Yisrael, However, Mishacharav Beit Hamikdash Hitkin Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakkai Sheihu Tokin Bechom Akom Sheyesh Bo Beitin. Once the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed, Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakkai instituted that the shofar should be blown any place where there is a Beitin. Um, now, in order to uh, understand the significance of this takana, Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakkai. We have to start off by understanding the basic halacha that Bamikdash Ayutokim Aval Lo Bamdina. Why do we have this differentiation? Uh, this is discussed both in the Bavli and in the Yerushalmi. Uh, the, uh, the Yerushalmi settles on a reason which is raised in the Bavli and ultimately rejected, but uh, is very likely the original reason which is that uh, blowing the shofar meikar uh, hadin should not be done uh, should not be done on Shabbat. That's at least the case outside of the uh, uh, outside of the mikdash. The reason being because of a differentiation between two psukim uh, pasuk in uh, Emor, which says zichron trua mikra kodesh. And the pasuk in Parshat Pinchas, which says Yom Trua Mikra Kodesh. So, based on whether you view Rosh Hashanah as a uh, Yom Trua, as in Parshat Pinchas, then you blow the shofar. Uh, or if you view uh, 
if you blew, uh, uh, view Rosh Hashanah as being Zichron Truah, then you only mention the Shofar, you remember the Shofar, you don't actually blow the Shofar, and the Midrash then differentiates and says, when is Rosh Hashanah Yom Truah? When it uh, falls on a weekday? When is it a Zichron Truah? When it falls on a Shabbat? The Bavli rejects this uh, drasha, which it's clearly aware of, and which, interestingly, has found its way into our Tfilot, uh, when we daven on Rosh Hashanah, uh, then we do make this differentiation, and, and on, when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, we call it a Yom Zichron Truah, uh, as opposed to just a Yom Truah. But in any event, the Bavli rejects it because it argues that the prohibition of blowing the Shofar on Shabbat, uh, outside of a mitzvah framework, is only Midrabanan and not the Oraita. And therefore, it makes no sense that the Pasuk would base itself on a Shabbat prohibition that uh, doesn't exist at the time of the giving uh, of the Torah. The Rushalmi presumably understands that blowing the Shofar on Shabbat uh, is a Doraita problem, and uh, there have been attempts made to understand what problem it is. And most probably, as some scholars have suggested, uh, the Rushalmi is uh, following uh, an assumption that it makes in several places that uvda dechol, that uh, doing weekday types of activities, is a Torah prohibition on Shabbat. As we know, the Bavli regards uvdin dechol as only the Rabbanan. So probably blowing the shofar would fall under that category, and uh, that's why the Yerushalmi and the Bavli have their dispute as to whether it's Doraita or uh, the Rabbanat. So that's why, uh, um, according to the Yerushalmi, you don't blow the shofar uh, uh, on, on a weekday, A, because there's a general prohibition against blowing a shofar uh, on Shabbat, and B, because you have this basis in the Pasuk for treating Rosh Hashanah as a Zichron Truah, and not as a Yom Truah, namely to only recall the blowing of Shafar and not actually perform it. Uh, according to the Bavli, which rejects this reading, so the reason we don't blow the Shafar on Shabbat is the well-known Gzerad de Rabbah, the fear that if you blow the Shafar uh, on Shabbat, so someone who is not uh, well-versed in how to blow the Shafar might take the Shafar out to Rishut HaRabim on Shabbat in order to uh, go to a Baki and gain, gain instruction as to how to blow the Shofar properly. And as the Gemara points out, this is the reason, again, only the reason in the Bavli, um, both for not reading the Megillah and Shabbat and for not uh, taking Arba Aminim on Sukkot on, uh, on Shabbat. Uh, in any event, the, the question arises, according to any of these readings, What's special about the Mikdash? Why do we blow the Shofar in the Mikdash even when it falls on Shabbat? Now, according to the Yerushalmi, uh, first of all, you have the Pasuk, but you still have to understand what, what it is that the Pasuk is, is coming to teach us. Uh, not only on the you know, practical level, but what, what is the halachic mechanism that the Pasuk is teaching us? Um, 
And uh, even according to the Bavli, as we'll see, it, it's possible to read things on, on, on a similar level. Uh, but first, let's, let's note that according to the Bavli, the solution could be a somewhat technical solution, which is, has been suggested, in fact, by many uh, Rishonim, you can find in, in the Rambam, in the Rambans, Drasha, and several other places, suggestions on the order of uh, Beitins Rizimheim. In other words, there's no room for the for Gzerah when you're talking about uh, uh, when you're talking about something that's done in the Beit Hamikdash, either because Kohanim's Rizim or because Beit Hamikdash is under rabbinic supervision of the High Court. Uh, one way or the other, there, there's no fear of of Gzerah the Rabbah because people who come to the Mikdash or to Beitin have a Mat Beitin or Alehem. Uh, or because the Beitin themselves will supervise things properly. So that's why in the Mikdash uh, you could blow the Shofar, and then Rabban Gamliel's Takana could also be viewed as, as a kind of technical uh, Takana, that uh, the same kind of supervision that exists in the Mikdash can be transferred from the Beit HaMikdash to the place of the High Court in, uh, uh, in Yavne. But uh, according to the Yerushalmi, uh, we would need to look for something more fundamental. And, and the more fundamental svara would seem to be that, uh, uh, according to the Yerushalmi, the, the blowing of the shofar and the mikdash uh, has a different standing and a different significance than the blowing of the shofar uh, anywhere else. This is an idea that we've already seen in the previous chapter, where we saw that there's a special shofar blowing in the Mikdash. We had, uh, for example, in Perak uh, Gimel, Mishnah Gimel, that the shofar in the Mikdash um, had perhaps a special shape, Yael Pashut. It certainly had uh, the, the gold covering. It uh, was blown in a special ceremonious way together with the, with the, uh, with the Chatzotzrot. So we saw that there's a special shofar blowing in the Mikdash, and the beginning of Perak Dalid then can be understood as teaching us that blowing the shofar in the Mikdash has a special standing. It's specially important if, as we saw at the end of Perak the point of blowing the shofar is l'chavein et halev l'avinu to direct our hearts to our Father in Heaven, so then it stands to reason that that can be done on a much more profound and meaningful level in the Beit HaMikdash than it, uh, uh, than it would be done anywhere else outside, uh, outside of the Mikdash. Uh, it's possible to accept this reading according to the Bavli as well. In other words, even if the reason for suspending the blowing of the shofar is because of the Gzerah de Rabbah, it could be that the Gzerah de Rabbah is overridden, not because, as uh, many Rishonim have suggested, the, the problem of the Gzerah has been solved by, by doing it in the, uh, in the Beit Din, uh, in the Mikdash or in the Beit Din, but rather because uh, it's so important that the Chachamim simply don't allow the, uh, this very important vitally and crucially important shofar blowing to be set aside because of the 
because of the Gzerad the Rabbah. This is an idea that uh, you can find in some of the Shurim of uh, of the Rav, Rabbi Soloveitchik. Uh, in any event, according to this second reading, uh, the Takana of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai would be, uh, I think, a much more dramatic Takana. He's not making a technical point that um, the same way that you solve the Zera at the uh, uh, inside the Beit Hamikdash, you solve the Zera in a similar way uh, in Yavne or in any other Beitin. The point that he's making is that the significance that attached to blowing the shofar in the Mikdash has now been transferred to a different place. There's another place where blowing the shofar will have the same meaning and the same dramatic significance that it had uh, earlier when the Beit HaMikdash was standing in the Beit HaMikdash. Now what exactly gave the blowing of the shofar in the Mikdash this special significance? Here again, we can read this in two ways and it would appear that the difference between these two ways might be a dispute again between the Bavli and the Rushalmi. According to the Bavli, the, the, in the Bavli's discussion of uh, uh, blowing the shofar uh, in Beitin, even on Shabbat, the, the Bavli makes it dependent upon the shofar where the new year was sanctified. By making it dependent upon the the Beitin, where the new month, I should have said, where the new month was uh, uh, was sanctified, Okay, so the the uh, the implication seems to be that the special sanctity of blowing the shofar, the special significance of blowing the shofar, is connected with the sanctification of the new moon. You sanctify the new moon, and in the very same place you blow the shofar. And this, in fact, is a is an idea that we uh, discussed at the end of last year that the blowing of the shofar and the, and the sanctification of the new moon are very closely bound up with one another. Um, and then, of course, the Takana of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai is, since we are now sanctifying the new moon in Yavne rather than in the Beit HaMikdash, so the blowing of the shofar now takes on that added significance due to its association with the sanctification of the of the new moon. According to Yerushalmi, however, it would appear, based on a drasha that the Yerushalmi brings, that the special significance of blowing the shofar in the Mikdash is related to the sacrifices. In other words, blowing the shofar is a kind of conclusion or add-on to the, uh, to the sacrifices. This is an idea that I think has a lot of support in the continuation uh, of the chapter, and especially when we get to uh, Perek Dalid Mishnah Zayin, which tells us, Of the Ovrim Lifnea Teva, the Shlichei Tzibur, on Rosh Hashanah, uh, the only one who, uh, uh, the only one who causes the shofar to be blown, matkia, is the second shliach tzibur. In other words, the chazan of Musaf is the one who causes the shofar to be blown. This is a very interesting term, matkia. 
And it seems to indicate that there's a very profound connection between the blowing of the shofar and the special tefillot of Rosh Hashanah, but as the Mishnah notes, only with regard to tefillat musaf. Now, tefillat musaf come, uh, comes in place of the special korbanot of Rosh Hashanah, which f- fits in very nicely with the idea that the blowing of the shofar and the mikdash was connected to the korbanot. In other words, which korban would it be connected with? Presumably the korban musaf. And that might be why both Mishnah Aleph and Mishnah Zayin uh, have a similar opening formula, Yom Tov Shal Rosh Hashanah, a phrase that does not appear elsewhere uh, in our Masechet. Yom Tov Shal Rosh Hashanah is when you blow the shofar uh, in the uh, Mikdash, if it comes out on Shabbat, and Yom Tov Shal Rosh Hashanah is when you blow the shofar in conjunction with the Musaf offering. Uh, with the Musaf offering in the Mikdash, of course, and with the Musaf prayer uh, outside of the Mikdash. And it should be noted that the Malchuyot, Zichronot, and Shofarot prayers, uh, according to standard practice, are done only during the Musaf offering. There is, of course, a well-known shita of the Baal HaMo'or that, that all the Tefillot uh, of Rosh Hashanah, not only Musaf, had these special prayers, but that's not our practice. And I think the Mishnah fits in well with the opinion of the uh, other Rishonim and, and less well according to the Baal HaMo'or. So to, to sum up uh, the point that, uh, that we've been making, according to the Rushalmi, the special significance of blowing the Shofar and the Mikdash had to do not necessarily with the fact that the Mikdash was the place where the, the new month and new year would be sanctified, but rather with the fact that the uh, korbanot were brought in the Mikdash and the uh, blowing of the shofar was then linked up with these korbanot. So this then would make the Takana of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai even more radical. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai now instituted that even though there are no korbanot, but this special sanctity, the special closeness to God that at the time of the Mikdash could be achieved only in the Mikdash, the place where you brought the korbanot, could now be achieved in any Beitin, but as the, uh, as the uh, Gemara suggests, perhaps only the great court, and perhaps only the great court where the new moon was sanctified. In other words, perhaps the sanctification of the new moon itself is taking on added significance at the time uh, uh, at the time when there's no longer a Beit Mikdash. Uh, there's an interesting Baraita in the Gemara that discusses that in the first year after the destruction of the temple, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai wanted to blow the shofar in Yavne, and he was opposed by other sages. And uh, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, uh, actually using a stratagem that we won't get into right now, actually uh, uh, brought about the blowing of the shofar in Yavne. And perhaps we can understand the, the hesitation of other sages to blow the shofar in Yavne as being uh, rooted in, in their concern that in fact there really was no substitute for the Mikdash, as far as blowing the shofar was concerned. Blowing the shofar on Shabbat 
requires a place that has a special closeness to the Shekhinah, special closeness to Avinu Shabashamai, uh, and accepting the Rushalmi's reading, we would say, a place where you can actually bring sacrifices, that no longer exists in Yavna. And so they felt there was no place where it would be appropriate to blow the shofar on Shabbat. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai apparently felt that Israel cannot be without a spiritual center. There must be some place on earth where you can achieve this special closeness to the Shekhinah that's expressed by blowing the shofar in public on Shabbat. And so Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai said, well, if we don't have a Beit HaMikdash, we still do have Yavna. We still do have a spiritual center, a place which will, among other things, sanctify the new moon. And, and therefore, uh, it is appropriate for us to blow the shofar in such a place, even when it comes on Shabbat. And this could also explain the dispute in Mishnah Bet. In Mishnah, uh, uh, excuse me, at the end of Mishnah Aleph. The end of Mishnah Aleph, there's a dispute between Rabbi Elazar and Rabban Yochanan and uh, and other sages whether Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai's Takana applies only to Yavne or it applies to any place where there is a Beitin. If we look at this historically, I think we can readily understand the uh, uh, the point of the dispute here. After the Beitin uh, moved to Yavne uh, under the aegis of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Um, a, a couple of generations later, it was moved from Yavne, which is in uh, Yehuda, was moved to the Galil. Now, the sanctity of Yudah and the Galil is not exactly the same. There, there are several halachot, including, by the way, the halachot of Ibur Shana and Kiddush HaChodesh, that indicate that Yehuda, which is the place where the Mikdash resides, uh, has a greater degree of, uh, of sanctity, and therefore as long as the Beit Din was in Yavne, remained in Yehuda, uh, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai was able to claim that uh, in such a place you can blow the shofar even on Shabbat. But then when the high court moved to Usha and to other places in the Galil at the time of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, so then the question arose, did Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai's Takana apply even to a high court that's no longer in the center of the country, in Yehuda, not far from Yerushalayim, but is already in the north of the country, in the Galil? Is this still the kind of spiritual center where we can blow the shofar, even on Shabbat? And uh, Rabbi Elazar thought that not. But again, the sages felt that this is not the case, that the spiritual center, the same way that it can move from Yerushalayim to Yavne, could also be moved from Yavne to other places, including in the uh, including in the Galil. Uh, we don't have uh, time today to talk in detail about the other takanot of of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Uh, I'll just note uh, briefly that. If in Halakha Aleph, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, Mishnah Aleph, and Bet, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai talks about Yavne as being a kind of replacement spiritual center for the Beit HaMikdash, 
This theme recurs again in Mishnah Dalid, at the end of Mishnah Dalid, uh, where the language is also repeated. Uh, the words kol makom in particular uh, remind us of kol makom sheyeshbo beitin. The word beitin itself appears here. Rosh, perhaps, might be related to Rosh Hashanah, although that's a, a little more tenuous. But in any event, beitin and kol makom are clearly very strong connections between this last takana of Rabban Yochanan Zakai and the first takana that's listed in in uh, in Mishnah Aleph, and so the frame of these halachot is that there is a replacement for the Beit Hamikdash, there is a new spiritual center. In the center, however, we learn halachot which teach you that there really is no replacement for the Beit Hamikdash, because. The, the institution of taking the Arba'a Minim every day in Mishnah Gimel is defined by the Mishnah as Zecher La Mikdash, a reminder of the Mikdash. It's not a replacement. There's no special place where you take the Lulav every day of Sukkot. This is done everywhere. It's done to commemorate the Mikdash, to keep the memory of the Mikdash alive, and to have Am Yisrael constantly yearn for it uh, and, and the Gemara, in fact, connects the idea of Zechel Mikdash with Drishat Tzion, with, with the yearning for uh, re-establishment uh, uh, of the Mikdash. I think the second Halakha in Mishnah Gimel uh, uh, does something similar, but again, we can't go into this in detail. But if we examine all of the Takanot of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai listed in these Mishnayot, we'll see that Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai is on the one hand seeking to establish a new spiritual center that will replace the lost Beit Mikdash. On the other hand, he's trying to keep the memory of the Mikdash alive to remind the people that there really is no substitute for the Beit HaMikdash and that they have to yearn for the Beit HaMikdash to be reestablished. Okay, we'll turn now to a brief perusal of the second section of the chapter, the section that opens with Seder Brachot and closes with Seder Tkiot. Now, the connection between the Brachot and the Tkiot is not only that they both open with the word Seder. First of all, we'll recall that Brachot and Tkiot appeared together in Paragimel. Okay, in Paragimel, Mishnahay, Shaveh Yovel Rosh Hashanah, La Tkiyav La Brachot. So we see there already that Tkiyah and Brachot really belong together. The connection between Brachot and Tkiot can be seen in a very interesting way when we notice that the Tkiot are Shalosh, Shalosh, Shalosh. Okay, three sets of three apiece. And when you actually go a bit further into the sounds that you make in the Shofar, you'll see each sound is actually composed of three. Shiurtkiah is three truot. A truah is three yevavot. And then you make three sounds. Tkiah, truah, tkiah. And then you repeat this three times. So it's really a whole concentric series of threes that constitutes the 
sounds that you draw out of the shofar. Now, if you look at the Seder Brachot, we'll see something similar. There are nine Brachot. Each, uh, these nine Brachot divide into three groups. Look at how Mishnah Hay presents the Seder Brachot. Avot, Gvurot, Kedushat Hashem is a group of three Brachot. Then we have, following Rabbi Akiva's reading, we have Malchuyot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, another group of three Brachot. Then we have the last three Brachot, Avodah, Vodaah, Uvirkat Kohanim. Now let's look at Malchuyot, Zichronot, Vishofarot themselves, and we'll again follow the opinion, not of uh, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri in, in, uh, uh, in Mishnah Vav, but we'll follow the standard opinion. The standard opinion is each one of them is composed of ten psukim, and the ten psukim divide into, you guessed it, threes. Okay, you have Nevi'im, uh, uh, Torah, Ketuvim, and Nevi'im. Each one of those three books, three psukim apiece, one concluding pasuk to, to come to the number to the, come to the number ten. So each of Malchiyot Zichronot Shofarot is also composed of three sets of three. Okay, so you have the Tefillah composed of three sets of three. You have each of Malchiyot Zichronot Shofarot composed of three sets of three. So the the structure of the Brachot and the structure of the Tkiyot very closely parallel one another. Now, interestingly, in Mishnah Hay. We focused on the opinion of Rabbi Akiva there, and with good reason. Because Rabbi Akiva not only is the one who presents this structure of 3-3-3-3 in, in its clearest fashion, Rabbi Akiva is also the one who draws the closest association between the brachot and the tkiot. Because Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri claims that, in fact, uh, the Malchuyot uh, Psukim are not incorporated into the middle section of the uh, of the three Brachot at all. Okay, the Malchuyot is incorporated into the first section in the Kedushat Hashem, the Brachot Kedushat Hashem, Atakadosh v'Shimcha Kadosh. That's where we recite the Malchuyot, and these Malchuyot then, according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri, are not affiliated with the Tkiyot. Rabbi Akiva then objects and says, If you don't uh, blow the shofar over the Malchuyot, what's the point of Lahazkir? What's the point of mentioning the Psukim at all if you're not going to blow the shofar over them? So you see then that Rabbi Akiva sees that there's a very close association between the Brachot and the Tkiyot. The whole point of the Brachot is to accompany the tkiot. Might we even suggest that the meaning of the tkiot is to accompany the brachot? That that would be an interesting uh, way of reading it, and in fact it's a way of reading that was adopted by several sources, among them the Tosefta in the first chapter, that says that uh, the point of reciting these brachot is First to accept God's kingship upon us, then so that our our memory may be come before the Ribanushalam Litov, Uvema Bashofar. 
And what actually brings our memory up to the Rebbe Shalom? The Shofar. The Shofar is here presented as something that raises our prayers heavenwards. Okay? Is this somehow related to the directing of the heart towards our Father in Heaven at the end of Chapter 3? A point for reflection that unfortunately we don't have time uh, to develop here. But be that as it may, Rabbi Akiva is the one who says that the psukim and, and the, you know, the brachot and the tkiot derive their meaning one from the other. They must accompany one another. There's no point in separating them. And therefore it must be that the malchiot, zichronot, and shofarot uh, are all three of them part of the middle section of the Amidah prayer because that's the section where we blow the shofar. Okay? That's the section uh, where we recite the Kedushat Hayom. And as we noted already, the, the Kedushat Hayom okay, is related to the Musaf offering. Okay? We're talking about the Musaf prayer. The Kedushat Hayom blessing in the Musaf prayer commemorates the Musaf offering and that needs to be closely associated with the tkiot. So you blow the shofar in the middle section, says Rabbi Akiva. You also recite the malchuyot prayer in the. Uh, uh, you also recite the malchuyot prayer in the middle uh, section of the uh, uh, of the davening. Um, there's a lot more we could discuss uh, in this chapter, and and in particular, I'm sorry that I don't have an opportunity to discuss in greater detail the machloket between Rabbi Yochanan and Ben-Nuri and Rabbi Akiva, who, in addition to the dispute that I've already noted, seem to uh, also have a dispute regarding the whole nature of the Malchuyot prayer, whether you associate it with the Kedushat Hashem in, in the first, uh, first section of three brachot, or whether you associate it with the Kedushat Hayom, but uh, unfortunately, our time is drawing uh, to an end, and uh, I want to uh, sum up the chapter and say a few words about summing up the Masechet uh, as well. Uh, in order to sum up the chapter, there are two points that I'd like to uh, that I'd like to make. First of all, how do the two parts of the chapter fit together? The Takanot of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai at the beginning, and the uh, Seder Brachot and Seder Tkiot section uh, in the second part of the chapter. It seems to me that the, there's a, a linguistic connection, a word association that again plays a, a crucial role in, in bringing these two sections together. And we'll see this in Perek Dalid Mishnah Dalid and Perek Dalid Mishnah Hey. Perek Dalid Mishnah Dalid uh, discusses uh, the the takana that's related to what happened when uh, witnesses came very late on the uh, on the thirtieth day, and according to many mafarshi, we're talking specifically about when this when this first day was Rosh Hashanah itself was the first of Tishrei, and uh, the Mishnah tells us. That on such an occasion, no, again, Otohayom Kodesh Ulamachar Kodesh. The first day of Rosh Hashanah would be, uh, sanctified as Rosh Hashanah, and the second day would also be Rosh Hashanah. Now this, 
term Hayom Kodesh is echoed in the very next Mishnah, which opens the next section, which talks about Kedushat Hayom, the sanctity of the day of Rosh Hashanah. So here we have a linguistic link between the first section and the second section. And interestingly, uh, Hayom Kodesh in Mishnah Dalit is talking again about the sanctity of the day of Rosh Hashanah. So the sanctity of the day of Rosh Hashanah seems to be a key theme that links the two parts of the chapter. Okay? Uh, again, this is a very brief presentation and, and we don't have time to develop it as fully uh, uh, as I would like, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll leave that for further reflection and perhaps we'll have occasion to discuss it uh, uh, on another occasion. The second point that I want to make uh, in summing up the chapter, uh, which will also uh, help us to sum up the Masechet, is a very uh, puzzling thing that happens at the end of the chapter. After talking about Seder Brachot, the Mishnah moves on to talk about Seder Tkiot at the end of the chapter. Having concluded the discussion of the Seder Tkiot, the Mishnah then says at the very end, so there's a dispute between the Tanakama and Rabban Gamliel whether uh, a shaliach tzibur can, uh, can by his prayer uh, discharge the obligation of the yachid, in other words, a yachid who knows how to pray on his own, or can he only discharge an obligation for a person who can't pray on his own, uh, but each individual can pray on his own, needs to do so, and can't fulfill his obligation by simply listening to Shleach Tzibur. Tanakama disagrees and says, excuse me, Rabbi Gamaliel says that he can, the Tanakama says that he can't. Okay? Tanakama says that, that each Yachid must pray, Rabbi Gamaliel uh, says no, the Shleach Tzibur can pray on his behalf. Now this halacha, first of all, seems completely out of place because we've already finished talking about the shliach tzibur, about the tefillah, we've moved back to talking about the tkiot, and all of a sudden, it seems to be a kind of afterthought, we've gone back to a shliach tzibur, to prayer. Secondly, this halacha, this halacha that, that we know to be a, uh, a general dispute between the Tanakhama Rabban Gamliel it, it, it's also brought in, in Masechet uh, uh, Brachot, and, and we know that there's a, a general dispute throughout the year between the Tanakama and Rabban Gamliel. So why is this brought in Masechet Rosh Hashanah at all? As far as why it's brought in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, it's interesting that both the Bavli and the Rushalmi are, uh, uh, have a tradition uh, mention a tradition that that uh, we paskin like Rabban Gamliel on Rosh Hashanah as opposed to the rest of the year when we paskin like the Tanakam. So it could be that the Mishnah redactor himself is bringing this here to indicate that Rabban Gamliel has special resonance and applicability when it's done on <coughs> Rosh Hashanah, but that still wouldn't answer why this is brought at the very end of the chapter rather than in the middle of the chapter where it would seem to belong. We've already noted on a previous occasion 
that Rabban Gamaliel's words echo the words of the end of Perek Gimel, Kol she'eno mechuyav badavar, e'no motziyat tarabim yidei chovatam. Whoever is not obligated in the mitzvah cannot discharge the obligation of the rabim. The mitzvah we're talking about there is tkiat shofar. And Rabban Gamliel, on the other hand, is talking about prayer. And we see again a connection between the brachot and the tkiot. Okay, the halacha at the end of Paragimul about the shliach tzibur who discharges the obligation for the many when it comes to tkiat shofar, this is echoed at the end of uh, Paragdalid when we talk about the shliach tzibur who, according to Rabban Gamliel, can discharge the obligation of the many. And it seems then that the Mishnah is trying to equate the many of blowing the shofar with the many of the tefillah. Okay, this is perhaps indicated as well by the sort of zigzagging back and forth between uh, the brachot and the and the tkiot. And it's also indicated by the parallel language of the end of Paragimel and the end of Paragdalit. But this brings us back to another loose end that I'd like to tie up and uh, conclude our discussion of the Masechet with that. Uh, the loose end is in Paragimel, which opened with Yachid and closed with Rabin. It opened with the Yachid, uh, who cannot serve as a Beitin to sanctify the new moon, and it closed with the Rabim who can discharge their obligation together of Tkiat Shofar. And now we have yet another Rabim, the Rabim, that can distar- discharge their obligation of prayer through the prayer of the Shaliach Tzibur. It seems then that when we take an overview of Prakim, Gimel, and Dalid, we see that the Mishnah is trying to weave together three different communities. The community that sanctifies the new month, the community that blows the shofar, the community that recites prayers together. Let's remember again that the centerpiece of our chapter at the end of the first section and the beginning of the second section is Kdushatayom, the sanctity of the day. The sanctity of the day perhaps weaves together these three themes. The theme of sanctifying the new month, which is also, in the case of Rosh Hashanah, sanctifying the new year. And because this month, when we sanctify it, is also the new year, we also create the community which blows the shofar and which recites the prayers. And so, perhaps, looking at the Masechet as a whole, the interweaving of the themes of Kiddush HaChodesh, the first two chapters, and uh, the sanctity of the day of Rosh Hashanah, the latter two chapters, the weaving together of both of these is about how sanctity is produced by the community of Israel. Okay? Every individual, of course, must play his role. And we saw in Kiddush HaChodesh how the individuals have to come to the court in order to convey the knowledge, and some of them go out from the court, and the court has to make sure that the knowledge goes out to uh, all the individual members of Am Yisrael. 
but Kiddush HaChodesh really is focused much more on the community. Uh, in Prakim Gimel and Dalid, which focuses on Rosh Hashanah, there's much more of an interaction between the community and the individual, because the mitzvot of Rosh Hashanah, the brachot and the tkiot, are mitzvot that apply to the individual as well as to the community. So even though these mitzvot can be done by the individual, okay, the Mishnah really emphasizes in the structure of Prakim, Gimel, and Dalid how it's vitally important for the individual to try to affiliate himself with the community and how the community can enable the individual to discharge his obligation with regard to uh, these mitzvot. As I'm sure you've uh, noted, uh, the ideas that I've intimated in the past several minutes uh, are ideas that richly deserve further development. I think they're very... Uh, there's a very uh, complex and intricate in- interaction of these ideas, but uh, I hope that I've suggested enough of these ideas to uh, indicate something of what the redactor of Masechet Rosh Hashanah was trying to convey. I hope in addition to uh, having a better and more profound understanding of the mitzvot and halachot that the Mishnah Masechet Rosh Hashanah uh, presents, I hope you've also developed uh, a new and deeper sense of how the Mishnah redactor takes his halachic materials and on occasion weaves in agadic materials as well and fashions them in such a way as to not only teach us what we should do, uh, guide us on the practical level, but also in order to uh, suggest the interaction of different points and different ideas, okay, and to challenge our thinking and through his sophisticated way of presenting, formulating, and interweaving the materials, he has both challenged us and enlightened us in understanding what the mitzvot and uh, values and ideas that he's presenting uh, have to teach us. Thank you.